Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Basically, I'm your host Stephanie Preisner and today in studio with me I have none other than Adam Harris, the CEO and founder of As I Am. Adam, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks so much for having me Stephanie, great to talk to you again. Again, yeah, my new best friend. (laughs) Um, Let's take it back to when autism was, let's say, first studied. Am I right in saying that it was first studied in boys and that is why a lot of the facets that were discovered then are different like the facets that women have which can tend to be different uh, were not highlighted at that point yeah you're right to say that much of early autism research was based purely on boys and that's why we have such a a skewed understanding of the condition so there are some girls or females or other genders that might have very typical symptoms like these boys that were first discovered but they also can have different ones that are more typically seen in females. I so I think it's more to do with the experience of being autistic that that can be different. Um and you know that can come from the fact that you know typically men might do certain things, typically women might do certain things. And then as with everything, you have to put an autism lens over that because autism is a pervasive experience. And I think this is more than just even about gender when we think about it for a second. So, you know, in the early days of autism research, it was very much based on the middle and upper classes. So we still have a situation around the world where, for example, people from socially disadvantaged backgrounds can find it harder to access diagnosis. People from certain ethnic minorities can Because of financial or because... I think there's two facets absolutely from financial we know that there is huge barriers to accessing support and services for autistic people of all ages and the reality is many people turn to private services um, but I think also even down to the fact that there is stereotypes and norms that are deeply damaging that prevent people getting the support that they need Like what? one community I think of in particular in Ireland is the traveller community uh, we know that there's a much less higher rate of diagnosis within the traveller community but there isn't any less prevalence of autistic people within the traveller community but there can be barriers to accessing supports people can have prejudiced and stigmatising views of minority ethnic groups and that can prevent people getting the support So therefore like a behaviour of an autistic child in a travelling community might be read not as an autistic behaviour but as a behaviour typical to that culture and therefore they would not be sent for assessment? Possibly. And, and, you know, I think it's about more than that as well. I think we need to do a lot more as a community to actively reach out. I mean, if you look at, and I I can say this, uh, like a a lot of autism advocates around the world, we're talking about white men. (laughs) Um, And I think there's a real effort for us to do as as a national charity, for example, to make sure that when we publish publications that they're accessible to everybody who lives in Ireland. Uh, And it's not just an Irish problem, but around the world, we need to make sure that just as we want inclusion for the autism community in general society, we need to make sure that the autism community is inclusive of everybody. Does it ever get exhausting? When you think of, sometimes I get overwhelmed by the amount of ground that still needs to be covered. Like you're trying to do something as a charity, you're trying to do the best thing. And then you look at all of the places you have to reach and all of the work that isn't being done and the vast amount of ground that needs to be covered. And it's so overwhelming. Like when you say that to me, I'm just like, oh God, I think I'd give up. It is overwhelming. And I have to say, I spend a lot of the time 
like when I'm off, for example, kind of beating myself up because you do sometimes kind of have a sense of no matter what you're doing, you're not doing enough and you're not doing it quickly enough. And you can see the stuff that you are doing, the people you are reaching, that it has an impact. But you're like, we need to move so much quicker here. We're seeing a generation of autistic people, you know, age out of the school system and, and, and too often aging into a society that doesn't understand, that doesn't include, that isn't respecting our human rights. What I think we have to try and do as as autistic people and as activists as difficult as it can be is to perhaps sometimes stop ourselves and realize you know if we look at the women's movement for example uh, and you know the massive barriers that still exist and we think when that started you know i don't know back with the the suffragettes i suppose if we look at the gay rights movement and or the lgbt community and, and the progress that's been made in recent years but the progress the barriers that still remain and then we look at the autism or the neurodiversity movement and we're really only warming up. So I think sometimes there is that challenge of we have to push the boundary and we think change needs to happen so much faster. I think we also need to be kind to ourselves and realising the starting point that we're coming from. Yeah, and I guess slow progress is not no progress. But sometimes, you know, when you're at the bottom of the hill and you look up and you're like, oh my God, like I look behind me and I've done like 10 steps and I have still, you know, this summit to climb. Yeah, You know, I think where there's a, a big body of work to be done is even getting us to a point that the public understand the human rights and equality implications when we talk about autism. You know, I think we're coming out of a medical model, we're coming out of a model that talked about, you know, autism in a very, very negative way uh, that really promoted nearly pitying autistic people, that that promoted in, in many respects segregation, that, that didn't talk about the abilities or the rights of autistic people in any respect. Uh, and you're coming from that model and, you know, for a long time the discussion was about autism awareness and people thought that was enough. People thought that, you know, if they made a donation to an autism charity or, you know, if they if they wore a certain colour on, on World Autism Day, that that was them doing their bit. But I don't think that they necessarily realise that, you know, our community is so much more likely to die by suicide, that our community is has such a higher unemployment rate, um, that autistic people in poverty, that there's an enormous link between those two things. Uh, I think there's a massive body of work to actually, you know, help society understand that ours is a community that is massively disadvantaged within society and not from being autistic, but actually from the society we live in where 98% of people at least are not autistic. And so is it about, um, so people are listening to this and they're like, okay, God, those are huge statistics. They're, why are autistic people more likely to die by suicide, let's say, to take that example? And now that they know and understand that fact after you've explained it, what can we do about it? Yeah, like, I, I don't know, this might, I think this is just a way that might help people understand it. I, I think there's more of a current of ableism within our thinking that we even give ourselves credit for. Explain what ableism is for people. So, you know, people will have heard of racism or homophobia. Ableism is the same. It's discrimination towards people with who are disabled, people who are neurodiverse, for example. Um and, you know, like all forms of discrimination, it's not always an active thing. Sometimes it's subconscious. Sometimes people don't even realize it. And the thing that really opened my eyes to it was during the COVID-19 pandemic. Because obviously I could see the the autism community, like, and as I am, we saw a 280% increase in queries because, you know, routine and structure gone, vital support services often closed. You know, our, the needs of our community not always put to the fore are considered in the pandemic. So we were dealing with all these new challenges. But actually, what really struck me was when I turned on the radio and I'd listen to people. And, you know, I think everybody within our society was suffering in one way or another during the pandemic. But it did amaze me sometimes to listen to people. And, you know, they were talking about, you know, I'm feeling so isolated uh, and by myself in the community. I can't see my friends. I can't do the things that I want to do. You know, we heard debates about how, you know, it, it wasn't possible to live on less than 350 euros a week when we talk about the pandemic unemployment payment. You know, we, we heard about people talking about the mental health, the anxiety, the unpredictability that they were just finding so hard to cope and live with. And I was listening to that and, and really empathising with what people were experiencing. But one of the things to my mind was, is do people who are sharing these experiences now realise that those challenges, unfortunately, are the norm for our community? They will be the norm as the pandemic lifts and society comes back to normal. So what I hope is that we can bottle that empathy and help people understand, just as you didn't like what's been like for the last two years, we need to make sure that as society reopens, that nobody's left behind and the autism community since the start of time has been very much left behind. 
And what are the things? That, okay, so first of all, so for people listening, um, I often feel a responsibility, like, and it's difficult because. So I was diagnosed at the age of thirty-four. And I do believe, you know, a lot of people said to me, but sure, you're fine. Like, you know, what difference does it make now, you know, and you're still the same person? And it's like, well, actually, it does make a huge difference. And if I had known earlier, I probably could have spared myself an awful lot of struggle um, because there are things that I find really, really very difficult. Um, like you're saying there, routine, um, not under- like not uh, sudden changes, surprises um, and I try to always, you know, go with the flow, like university, going to my Debs, trying to force myself to socialise, to go out on night, nights out, all those things that led to really serious mental health issues. And if I had known earlier, I would have been able to just say, actually, this is not within my capacity and I don't want to do it. And it's not because there's something wrong with me. It's just because I'm autistic and it's a different neurotype and have that explained away. Um, and so I do believe that it is important for people to know themselves. And, you know, then people will say to me like, oh, I'm like that too. We're all a bit autistic. I don't love going out. One, we're not all a bit autistic. And two, I use the example of just because you don't like going out, you know, that's like saying blind people bunk, bump into things. Oh, I bumped into something once. Therefore, I'm blind. Your whole day, like I had my first autistic meltdown in public last week, which was really really stressful and it was because I had my breakfast packed and I forgot my breakfast I left my breakfast at home and I couldn't like for someone else they might be like oh god damn it that's really annoying I couldn't do what I was meant to be doing I was meant to be working I was fixated on it I was really really distressed and it took a long time and a lot of help to get me back regulated so that I could get on with my day anyway so I think that it is important that people get diagnosed if they do feel that they are autistic what so I want to just segue a little bit from what we've been talking about and we will come back to it into what are the things that people should look out for in themselves if they think that they might be autistic or have some sort of neurodiversity um, so that they can access the supports and help that they need following a diagnosis. So the first thing I think I would say is representation matters and I think it matters a huge amount. So I think for a lot of older autistic people I meet and particularly people maybe who don't have a child themselves, for example, on the sometimes when people have their own child and, and they see their, their that person go through life and experience the strengths and, and challenges that can come with being autistic, people begin to relate to their own childhood and their own experiences in life and begin to ask questions. But I think if if you haven't had that experience, if you're an autistic 17 year old from County Cavan or if you're you know uh, if, if you're Stephanie Preisner uh, and and you're, you're you're trying to work this out I think sometimes what people can do is find it very hard to relate to autism themselves maybe they've never met an autistic person that they can relate to who reminds them of themselves so what I think is really positive thing that is happening at the moment is that as more autistic people not only go forward for diagnosis but are actually openly speaking about their identification autism is such a big spectrum it helps us all to actually say well what that person's saying that's me or that's the challenge I'm having so what I would say is autistic voice is so so important because I think it's a a major tool in which we can enable people to actually understand themselves and and present what I would say is if you're if you are um experiencing some of the challenges that you might hear autistic people talk about whether that's you know differences in how we communicate and understand information whether that's significant differences in how you're experiencing the environment and how that's impacting on your day you know what I would say is please do don't be afraid to come forward and ask questions um there's some people in our community who don't go forward for diagnosis I mean we have to be honest with people it doesn't always lead to supports or services but it's it can sometimes be about finding your tribe and I think if you if you begin to feel maybe you're on the autism spectrum there are so many autistic adults who'd be happy to talk to you who'd be happy to share their experiences who'd be happy to signpost you and welcome you to the community and that's everything from online groups to our own organization that you can get in touch with and I'll give details for at the end um in terms of you know if you are beginning to uh, to 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 query things, you know, it might be a good idea to talk to your GP and see if they can give you some guidance or, or refer you onwards. Or indeed, there is some really good services now that are providing diagnosis. Unfortunately, one of the barriers for many autistic adults is presently in 90% of cases you really are talking about it's going to be a private process. It can be costly for people, um, but it can make a big difference. So what I would say is if you can relate to 
what you hear. Don't be afraid to explore. I think that's really very useful. I think it's not really about um, showing or like highlighting specific symptoms because as you say, not everyone will take all of those boxes. But, you know, there are um, criteria that you have to meet, which are highlighted on the DSM-5. So you could probably Google that um, as well as a start. Um, OK, so let's circle back to where we were. Yes, I can. What we were talking about is what can people do? And I think this is a really, well, I guess this is really what As I Am is all about. Because I think what people don't understand is that autistic people are already adapting all of the time. And we know that, that, that every day to do things that other people don't think about, you know, getting on public transport, sitting in office, going to college or school. That's it requires major adaptation for an autistic person. Like even when we sat down to record this podcast, our producer was like, Adam, if you could just you're perfect there where you sit there on the mic, but sometimes you lean back. If you could just stay <laughs> where you're meant to be sitting. So, like, <laughs> it's true. So people adapt all of the time. Um, what I think people need to realise is that we need neurotypical people to meet our community halfway. So neurotypical people, for those of you listening, are people who are not on People who are not um, autistic, autistic. Or, or aren't neurodiverse and maybe don't have ADHD, aren't dyslexic, dyspraxic or, 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 or any of those other different neurotypes. So the majority of people. Um, I, I think it's about people understanding that um, small changes can make a big difference. I mean, one of the problems with the medicalization of autism for so long is that people think you need to be highly qualified and wearing a white coat in order to include autistic people. You know, even today, you'd be astounded as to how many autistic people can't access even private mental health care. Because literally, the moment you say the word autism, people will, you know, experience fear and say, oh, I don't deal with autistic people. Yeah. Uh, like, that's an acceptable thing to say. So I think the message is small changes can be a big difference. Um, But the main message I have for people is that the onus to change or to adapt shouldn't always be on the autistic person. In actual fact, if a person's experiencing accessibility barriers, you know, people might remember Ireland ratifying the UN convention. What that was all about was actually saying society needs to move it and make sure that everybody has an opportunity to participate. The challenge, I think, with autism is because our differences are invisible, I sometimes they feel that people can kind of decide when they want to believe in them or not. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, everyone's all for it uh, when we're just talking abstractly. But when it actually requires change, it actually requires accepting. Well, no, maybe your colleague does need to get up and have a movement break in the office every once in a while. Or maybe it means you do have to put a little bit more time into telling somebody what to expect before they're coming for a job interview. Uh, or maybe it is that actually there's some days your friend doesn't want to talk to you and it's not because they don't love you or they don't want to, to have fun with you, but it's that they're actually exhausted by the canteen you're in at that particular moment in time. So it's about those small changes and being willing to to, to, to go halfway. You know, I often think if people could be clear, be patient and be calm, those three small changes, it would help a lot of autistic people, but it would actually make for a much better operational environment well, for, everyone. for everyone. Because that's the thing, like I do hate when people say, oh, I think we're all a bit autistic because we're not like you're autistic or you're not. But there, that's not to say that if I say, God, I find it much better when people text me before they ring because I will not answer. I just will not answer the phone. If you ring me and I don't know what it's about and you just want to chat, I won't answer because I don't I don't know how to talk on the phone. I know a lot of my friends who are neurotypical who have that same experience. And so I wonder whether there can't be universal accommodations. Like, you know, the pandemic has shown us that we are capable of universally accommodating people. We can, in a minute, push our whole company online and we're all on Zoom. We can, you know, you know, take out of the equation the need for in-person meetings. We've done it. We can have our doctor's appointments over Zoom. We can have, you know, calls. To, you know, we have shown that we can do it. And these are universal accommodations. I'm wondering whether it needs to be, you know, like you're saying there, accommodations made for autistic people. Why can't we just build a society? And it wouldn't take a huge amount of Lego to rebuild it. <laughs> like, build a society that has these offerings that people can opt in or opt out of whether or not they're artistic but they would suit 
well you know if you come to an as i am event that's a lot of what we do a lot of the time um, and hopefully you will one day um like for example sometimes there's supports a person needs that's very specific to them that you know might require them giving you some information something really specific to them i'm thinking for example a particular sensory trigger that the person has that you wouldn't be aware of unless a person told you about and even with planning in the environment you know it mightn't be something that you come across or that you're able to easily minimize. But then there's an awful lot we can do that sh- should be universally accessible, that shouldn't even require sharing a diagnosis or disclosure. So, for example, if you come to As I Am events, we give everyone three stickers or, or a wristband, depending on the day. And if you put on a green sticker, it means happy to talk to you. If you put on an amber one, it means I'm feeling a little bit stressed. If you know me, come up to me. But if you're a stranger, p- uh, you know, please don't initiate conversation. And red means leave me alone. No, who wouldn't like that? <laughs> I think that um, is a great idea. A, a, a quiet space that people can go into if they're feeling overwhelmed. Yes, an autistic person might need it, but actually the parent of an autistic person who maybe hasn't had a lot of sleep the night before could also benefit from that. So these changes, they work, uh, and I think they're nothing to be afraid of. And it's not like, do people, do you know, I just wonder, because when I met you first, you gave me uh, this welcome pack, which had such a, those three stickers, which are like traffic light systems. And also this bad, this wristband. You might remember these types of wristbands. I remember them, first of all, when Lance Armstrong, the, the yellow ones. Um, but people have these sort of like pla- rubber bands. And Adam's one has, it's green on one side and red on the other. And so you flip it over and the red is out if you don't want people to talk to you and it's green when you're happy for people to talk to you. I just wonder whether people would get offended. I'd love to use that all the time but I feel like people, neurotypicals would be offended if I was like, look, I don't want to talk to you. And I think that's, you know, I think knowledge is 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 sometimes a defense if people don't know I'm very open to you know having that conversation educating people but I think the thing is you know and this is where we are talking about rights you know people will have to to get over themselves <laughs> you know if you have the information and somebody's telling you they need support and you're not willing to provide that support or you're not willing to give that accommodation that's when you step over the threshold of just not being a very nice person yeah. so I think when people ask for support when people indicate they need reasonable accommodations it's really important they receive them and what I do want to reassure people is you know there's always going to be difficult customers out there but my experience is most people when they have the information they need really do want to do the right thing so if someone's listening to this and they're a manager or they run a workplace or they work with someone who's autistic what can they do to be more accommodating well I think this is really urgent because I think you know I often say that we're all really good at saying what what children should do and what schools should do Um, you know we all want our child to be the person who invites the person who's a little bit different to their birthday party who goes to a school that wants to include people most of us want that uh, but I often think as adults we don't hold ourselves to the same standards um, you know we might want our children to behave that way but if someone came into a job interview and didn't make eye contact would we give the person the job and this is really important because there's so many autistic adults who are only getting their identification of autism now who aren't aware of the fact that they're autistic or indeed who are aging out of school so there's a real urgent need for us to push the inclusion discussion beyond the school gate and out of services into the community where everybody lives um so what i would say is we know from a whole range of data the workplaces that are diverse that are inclusive that represent the customer base that they want to serve are more effective have better bottom lines than those that are not um and you know we have a reality that autistic people have so much to contribute and to add to workplaces you know the fact that we've scattered skill sets if you like we're often specialists not generalists can often focus intensely on things that we're interested in are less likely to leave a company and go to another one like a lot of neurotypicals who can be fickle um, might do. So so many advantages to hiring autistic talent. But what we've seen, and we did a, a study earlier this year called Autism in the Workplace with Irish Jobs, is there's a disconnect often between the experiences of autistic people seeking work. You know, for example, two thirds of people, three quarters of people rather, won't tell their employer that they are autistic for fear of stigma or being treated differently versus employers who want to do the right thing but often don't know what it is or already feel they are doing it. So I think it's it's about really increasing that knowledge gap around the steps you can take to access this talent pool. And, you know, there's lots of myths about it that, you know, all autistic people will be good at one particular type of job. You know, we're all brilliant at programming or mathematics or whatever. Whatever an autistic person's interested in, that's where the person's skill set will be. Some people will want to work full time. Some people part time is enough for even a few hours a week. But it's it's about 
income and, and participation, but it's also just about dignity and having having an identity, having something to do within society. Um, small changes can make a big difference. So about half of my team is neurodiverse and we've developed a process to bring that about in the interview. And it's really small changes. We always give an assignment so the person can show us what they can do as opposed to just tell us what they do. There's no surprises in the interview. You get the list of questions in advance. You know who's going to be there, how the room's going to be set up. You get the questions both in writing and spoken so you can process them at your speed. There's no marks or or no consideration given to body language or facial expression. We even ask the panel not to wear, for example, deodorants or aftershaves that might throw somebody off. Uh, If we're not using a projector in the room, we turn it off. Um, We ask people what supports they need in advance and we give people a visual guide that shows here's what will happen from when you ring the doorbell to when we say thanks a million we'll be in touch and the feedback we get is is obviously good because we've been able to recruit lots of autistic and neurodiverse people but actually the feedback we get from neurotypicals is wow that was the best recruitment process I ever went through I didn't feel you were trying to catch me out I felt really calm you know even if I didn't get the job I felt that I was able to put my best foot forward so these small changes can make a big difference I think that's like I just love that but obviously I would love that <laughs> do this is sort of an ignorant question but do, would all teachers know that their students are autistic if they have autistic students in the classroom? It would depend because some people may or may not have access diagnosis. There's also no longer a legal obligation to share the fact that you have a diagnosis when you're, in fact, a school won't be allowed to ask, you know, when, when somebody's starting school. So they may or may not. In most instances, I think they probably will. You know, I think I need to be careful not to go in a soliloquy here because it's probably one of the areas I'm most passionate about. And one of the reasons I'm really passionate about this is I had a really good experience in school. You know, I was in special school. I was in mainstream school with support with an SNA, And then I went to secondary school independently. So I got a pretty good 360 and the people I met along the way were really what made it. Uh, teachers who wanted to, for example, focus on the things I was good at and use them to help me in the areas that I was poor at, as opposed to doing what too often happens when we talk about autism in children, which is here's a long list of things a person's bad at and we're going to work through it like a snag list. Because aside from being terrible for a person's self-esteem, it doesn't work when we think about how autistic people's brains work. Uh, so I, I was really lucky and I always say that to families that, you know, it isn't always about is is this type of school better than that type of school or it isn't always even about the supports that are in a school. The most important thing is the people and the culture. You know, there's lots we could do to make our education system more inclusive, but there's a couple of very small things I'd say. I'd really like to see us improve how we talk about autism in school. Uh, you know, if we want to... Div- this to be a, a, an accepted part of diversity within our society that has to start from a really young age um, I'm concerned that's what we talk about lots of other diversity we still too often are nearly afraid or back away from talking about disability and I think that's really not a good thing we need to talk about it and normalise it because it is normal I think the other thing that we need to do is the language we use in school we talk about autism units which sound like hospitals within the school we talk about disorders it's very hard to to, to talk about someone being positive about their diagnosis when you're describing them as disordered. So I think there's a lot of work for us to do to realise that before we can even hope for an autistic person to be able to engage in the curriculum. Because every day an autistic person has to learn two things. They have to learn the academic curriculum, but then they have to learn that whole grey neurotypical curriculum of life. Often people try and focus on one or other of those things. You need to take a step further back and actually focus on well-being. How can we make this person happy in school? And if we can do that, and a big part of how we do that is the culture and how we approach autism in school, that's how we'll help a person learn and that's how we'll help a person thrive in the long run. The other big thing that I would ask is that autistic accommodations, reasonable accommodations for autistic people, be understood not as optional extras, but but as rights. Um, You know, you would never expect a student who uses who's, who's, who uses a wheelchair to go up the staircase. But sometimes, for example, things like movement breaks for autistic people or the fact that an autistic person might need to wear a different shirt with their school uniform because maybe the other starchy shirt feels like it's cutting them. Sometimes people nearly think these are things that can be negotiated or we might allow it today, but it might be inconvenient tomorrow. These are rights. When people ask for support, when people are brave enough to seek the support they need, please provide it because what we know is when people are supported in a way in school that they regret having shared their diagnosis or they feel othered or they feel patronised, the consequence of that is people don't come forward for support in the future and we can't afford for that to happen. Okay, we're going to move on to a section that I'm going to call myth busting because I've been hearing a lot of myths since my diagnosis and I sometimes don't know how to combat them. So I'll hit you with the first one and then... 
obviously figuratively and then you can <laughs> respond um, back in my day there was none of this autism or autism is overdiagnosed these days so we know it's not uh, we know that the diagnosis rates in Ireland are pretty much in keeping with other countries around the world you know somewhere between maybe one and a half and two percent of the population is what we're seeing in lots and lots and lots of countries uh, but also when people say well there's none of that in my day they're probably right to be honest because there probably was the case that when they went to school people who were different were totally segregated or at best were at the back of the classroom treated really badly maybe treated like they were just bold or that they just didn't want to learn and there's also the reality that you know in the 1950s in Ireland we segregated more people per capita institutionalised rather than any other nation in the world the USSR came a poor second so you know the reality is if you're saying you didn't see many people in your community who were autistic growing up the chances are from a very very young age they were segregated and cut away from society so it's not that we're overdiagnosing it, it's that we're not hiding these people away. Uh, unfortunately, I think like the media in recent years has nearly made it sound like a bad thing, you know, and they've often, terrible things have been said about, you know, sounding alarms and fighting epidemics and this awful pejorative language. But every time I see an increase in diagnosis, I think that's a cause for celebration because it means there's more people coming forward, there's more people being affirmed in their identity and hopefully getting the support that they need. So we, you just said that kind of one and a half to two percent is the global average of like the autism in the population. Is that to say that if every single person in the world were diagnosed, were, were assessed, that that is what they think the average would be? Or is that just of people coming forward? So I'm, I'm, I want to be very clear. So I'm not a, an expert in, in the, you know, the diagnosis of autism around the world. Um, but these are sort of the statistics that we would see. And one of the things we do know from from evidence is it, it doesn't appear to be the case that autistic people are, are more prevalent in, in one nation than another. Okay. Uh, there can be variance in prevalence based on socioeconomic factors, even within cities. You might think, so, for example, that a more well-off area has a higher higher rate of diagnosis but often that can be to do with access to services um, but but it's it's reasonable to presume that the same level of prevalence uh, exists throughout the world right. Second myth we are all a bit autistic We're not um, and I think this is important because I think sometimes people say this coming from a really good place uh, you know they kind of have a viewpoint which is you know I want to be able to relate so often I stand up in a school to give a talk and the principal will introduce me in this way you know guys it's really important we listen I actually think we're all a bit on the spectrum and it's meant as a, a as a goodwill thing I think or I think sometimes you know there is a reality if you sit through a two hour talk on autism there will be things that you relate to but we have to bear in mind that what an autism identification or diagnosis about is that these differences are something that really influence every aspect of your day-to-day life and you know it's not just about as you your analogy is actually perfect for this the idea of if you bump into something once you know it doesn't mean for example that you don't see things all the time or you're visually impaired or blind in the same way it's you know people who are autistic get a diagnosis because very often the world is very inaccessible and people are are, are having to make massive efforts to, to live in a world that isn't built with this in mind and it's when we say every person is autistic we run the risk of I think downplaying the structural barriers that people face uh, Third myth um, autism is caused by insert nonsense here insert nonsense here and I mean every time I buy a red top newspaper it's, there seems to be a different answer Yeah. Um, the, the reality is there is no one cause of autism we do know that genetics do play a part we do know that many autistic people have autistic family members for example but we don't know the cause of autism um, definitively unfortunately a, an amount of money that you or I can't fathom has been pumped into both trying to find a cause of autism and a cure of autism instead of actually saying wow wouldn't it be great if we put all that time and expertise and resources into making sure that we research things that really do impact autistic people's lives like for example a disproportionate number of people in our community have epilepsy like for example we know not enough autistic people are able to get work or have experienced mental health conditions why not research that how we can improve people's quality of life as opposed to kind of implicating or suggesting that an autistic life is is less worthy or less valuable than a neurotypical one. Um, all autistic people are brilliant at maths. I'm not, are you? 
I'm really abysmal. <laughs> like, yeah, quite too. awful. Um, uh, so autistic people often have what might be called a spiky profile or scattered skill sets. And that might mean that people listening at home will have things they're good at and bad at. But for most people, it's pretty rounded, if that makes sense. For those of us who are autistic, that gap can be much more pronounced. So the things we're good at, we can really excel at, really focus in. And we might find it very hard to even concentrate on things that we aren't interested in. Um, and, you know, I think sometimes as well, this... This does get, um, I think, kind of confused with the idea that, you know, every autistic person, for example, is a genius. These interests can be anything. Um, You know, every person is still very different. Um, But the reality is that what we need to do to support autistic people is find what's the person interested in and how can we use that to help a person in the areas they might need more support. So, for example, my primary school used history which is my special interest grow all my way growing up to teach me things like maths to get me to do learn organizational skills by doing projects to help me make friends by showing me being good at something instead of something i was struggling at so it's what's the person good at honing in on that and using that as a tool and is that to say that it's um so say english irish maths history geography just as a that if um if an autistic person is not so great with languages that we then take like we don't force them to learn French and Irish or that we use their special interests to try and teach them those languages even though it's sort of a neurotypical like school structure to even study those subjects well I you know I think the challenge at the moment is the most autism friendly school in the country um if you were it, let us know. We'd, we'd love to find out where it is. But uh, the most autism friendly school in the country still won't be fully autism friendly because, you know, you're still making people work through a system that isn't yes. fully accessible. So I think that is the case. Sometimes with the right support, adulthood can nearly get a bit easier because you've maybe learned more skills at, at managing life and you're able to pursue the things that you're most interested in. One of the things I think is most worrying about this piece is sometimes because of those scattered skill sets, you know, when I was growing up, we tried to put people into categories, you know, high functioning, low functioning. And obviously that's really offensive because it misses the fact that people who might seem like they're really able to manage in one setting might need a lot of support in another. But in actual fact, what has often happened is, you know, maybe somebody, for example, doesn't communicate by speaking. So as a result, they have a glass ceiling put under their head, over their head. People make huge assumptions about what that person's good at, what that person's capable of. And then the other end, you might have somebody who is really, really strong in one area. Maybe they're a great communicator in work, but maybe they find every aspect of organizing day to day life really overwhelming and really stressful. So you end up with a situation where some people uh, have their needs dismissed and really struggle and some people have their abilities dismissed and overlooked so we need to see autism not as a linear thing but one where every person is individual and every person's needs interests and abilities will be different um, two more myths all autistic people cannot make eye contact she says looking directly at Adam who's looking directly back at her um, that's surely a myth yeah that is a myth uh, some autistic people choo- don't use eye contact in order to communicate more effectively. So in other words, uh, if you're somebody who has to put a lot of work into processing what's being said, and if perhaps growing up you didn't, uh, you don't use facial expression the same way as other people, you don't understand it in the same way a neurotypical person might, it's too much information at once to be processing words and facial expressions. Some people find it much easier to process their own thoughts and indeed to hear what's said by looking away. In the old days, we used to try and force autistic people who don't make eye contact to do so. We should never do that. But many of us do and can make eye contact. Um, Autistic people want to be alone. This is the one that I'd really like to to crack because the vast majority of autistic people I meet and from my own experience growing up, people really want to make friends. People really want to be accepted and included in the community. Indeed, some British research shows autistic people are four times more likely to experience loneliness than non-autistic people. And, you know, you can be lonely when you're isolated and left out. You can also be lonely in a very crowded space where you don't feel heard or you don't feel like you fit in. Um, But what I would say is, it's very important that we never force autistic people into neurotypical social situations. So an amazing social life for an autistic person may not look like an amazing social life for a neurotypical person. Maybe it's less frequent. Maybe it's with fewer people. Maybe it's built around a very particular activity as opposed to kind of the abstract idea of hanging out. Um, 
But I think what is important, and if 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 there was one thing that I'd ask people to do, whether they're in work or school or, or or home, is that when we see people who are on the periphery, who don't know where to start, that we always invite the person. They mightn't say they mightn't respond to us. Uh, they might always say no. But it's really important to to send that message and to keep that door open so the person can when they are ready. Um, as well as that, for many autistic people, it's much easier to socialise around a structured activity as opposed to just the abstract, the sitting, the worrying about small talk. So find out about what the person's interested in and try and build a social opportunity around that. Uh, but I think critically, you know, what I would kind of say to people is just bear in mind as well, I'm not just talking about the guy who you know in your class or in your workplace is autistic. I'm talking about people you know who are different, who you think are isolated. They may be autistic, they may not. But I think if we reached out to people in that situation, we reach an a-, a lot of autistic people and we'd probably drive a more inclusive society in general. And yeah, just the world would be a little bit more sound. Um, Adam, if people want more information from you, want to find you, hunt you down and ask you more questions, where can they find you? (laughs) With you a lot these days. Um, So people can email info at asiam.ie if they'd like to get in touch with us, if they they need any support. You can also access our website, which is asiam.ie. And we're also on all social media platforms at forward slash asiamireland. Thank you so very much. Taking a break from the episode to bring you an ad because this podcast is only possible because of our sponsor. Supporting our sponsor supports the podcast and let me tell you about who they are. Rockwell's financial planning service is designed for anyone who feels as if they kind of need to just put a shape on their finances. I don't know if you're like me, you kind of feel like, oh, my finances are all over the place. I need to kind of start adulting. This is the service for you. Whether you're like a senior executive in a multinational company or a small business owner or just a young couple looking to get a head start in your financial planning, a single person who wants to make plans for their future, So they consider themselves financial doers rather than financial planners, which I really like because it's active. It's not just like um, namby-pamby sort of making a plan. doesn't matter where you are in the country. They're happy to help you in person or over Zoom. Pensions and investments are really important, but they're absolutely useless without knowing why you're using them and what you're using them for. They are in the outcomes business. They are in the business of results. So it's not just about the plan, it's about the action. So they use this like award-winning investment advice to help their clients achieve their goals. And they have a special offer for you listening right now, for Basically listeners. If you go to rockwellfinancial.ie forward slash basically, you can book a complimentary financial planning session today. You'll get a cash flow model which outlines any gaps in your finances and they'll give you the first steps to achieving your specific goals. I highly recommend Rockwell and I think as a Basically listener, you should definitely check it out. It's free. It's going to put you on the right path to getting your finances in order. That's it. Go to rockwellfinancial.ie forward slash basically. I'm Trevor. I'm Ed. And I'm Andrea. And we are... The The Sinistream Club. Where we take a movie that society deems a classic and put it to the Sinistream test. Where we ask all the tough questions like Does this movie make any sense? Why isn't Tom Hanks in this movie? How many sandwiches are in this film? What kind of watches are people wearing? Was that sex scene really necessary? Says my mother. What trivia does Trev know in Trev's Trivia? What trivia do I know in Trev's Trivia? That's what I said. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) All these questions and more will be answered every fortnight in the Cine Stream Club. Available from wherever you get your podcasts. And the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, just dropping in to say thank you for continuing to listen. That was Adam Harris. He was incredible. And while we are on the subject, I want to introduce you to one of my favourite people from my favourite TV show, Love on the Spectrum. If you haven't seen it, go and watch it. It is on Netflix and it's about young adults in Australia who are on the autistic spectrum and their, their, I guess, their journey to finding love. It's absolutely gorgeous. And one of my favourite characters on it is Michael Theo. And he joins me. We, we spoke over Zoom and I thought it would be interesting to attach it to this episode. Keep in mind that when you've met an autistic person, you have met one autistic person. Michael is on the autistic spectrum. He has Asperger's and he is brilliant and amazing. And I really hope that you enjoy my conversation with him. Here we go. Hi, Michael. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Yourself? 
I'm not too bad. Is it very late where you are or very early? No, it's actually um like five minutes till um five here. Five minutes to five PM. No, no, I mean five minutes till eight PM I met. Okay. Five minutes till eight PM on Friday evening. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so you're in the future. It's really nice to meet you. I'm so excited to meet you. Likewise. You must be Stephanie Preisner. Preisner, yes. Yeah, I've heard that you really like um you've like you like German things. Or like things about Germany. Yeah. yeah. So Yes, I do. Yeah. So um people may know you from Love on the Spectrum. And yes. uh, which was for people who haven't seen it, a Netflix documentary, would you call it a documentary? Um Yeah. Do you want to explain what it was? Um, it's basically a documentary about people on the autism spectrum and their experiences with dating, relationships. Basically, yeah, that, and it was absolutely fascinating. And you were in two series of it. Um, yeah, it was. So um, you have, you have, how, how do you identify, uh, you're on the autistic spectrum? Actually, I have Asperger's. Asperger's, which is, is that different to being on the autistic spectrum? Yeah, it's a milder form of autism. Okay, great. And at, at what, at what age were you, were you diagnosed? Five, I, according to my mother. And do you remember any of that process? I don't remember any of it. Okay. And uh, how do you feel like your your Asperger's manifests for you or, or presents? Well, sometimes it can be hard for me to maintain friendships as I sometimes seem to be the only one who puts in any work. That can be really difficult, can't it? It can be, yeah. Um. I find I I'm I I've been recently diagnosed as autistic, um, and my under oh. my understanding is that Asperger's syndrome is a milder form of autism. But because I was diagnosed on the DSM five, it's not really um separated anymore. But I think um I think if I had been diagnosed under the DSM four model, then I would also be I would also have Asperger's but it's just called autism in general now. And I can find I, I can find friendships difficult to maintain as well because sometimes people think that I'm a little bit too intense or um uh or maybe too controlling because I don't really like surprises um and uh, yeah sometimes people are just a little bit of an enigma where I don't really understand what they're thinking. Yeah, I can agree with that. Did you watch Love on the Spectrum back? I did, yes. How was it to see yourself on screen? It felt kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, but did you did you notice anything about yourself, or were you surprised? Oh, not really. No. Did they? Although I go on. Although I did feel maybe somewhat embarrassed at times. About what? Maybe some stuff that I might have said. Like what? I can't imagine anything. I were like, I've watched it a few times. I didn't think anything was embarrassing. What kind of stuff embarrasses you? <laughs> I can't remember. I thought you represented yourself so well. And I think you were like Thanks. a fan favourite. Have you had a lot of people recognising you from the show? Yeah. In, a, in New South Wales, I have, yeah. And I keep getting messages from people on, on Instagram every day. Yeah. And I think you'll probably have more after this because I've got loads of people to watch the show and I've just tagged you on Instagram. So I think they'll probably all go yeah, and follow I, you. I saw that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you're everybody's favourite. Did, did you, do you know any of the other contestants on the show? You mean participants? Contribute, participants, that's what I meant. I do know a few of them, but I don't really interact with them much. Yeah, they, like none of them live near you? No, no, they don't. Yeah, I think you were definitely people's favourite. And I also really think that your mum is amazing. I think she's Thank so you. she's so brilliant and she's got such a great attitude. Um, do, you, do you get on really well with your mum? I do, yes. But the thing is, there are times where she can, you know drive me a bit nuts. I think that's the same with everybody's mum. <laughs> are you s- Yeah. <laughs> are you still living at home? Sorry? Are you do you live at home with your mum? Yep, still living with my, with my parents. That's most people I know, particularly in Ireland because we have a housing crisis, so people can't really like afford to move out of their parents' house because rent is so high and it's so difficult to buy a house. Oh my god. Yeah, it's it's not ideal. Uh, we, we've done an episode on autism and Asperger's in women and how it's a little bit different to Asperger's and autism in men and we're going to have um, yeah. a doctor of psychology on um, and 
we're we're going to be you're going to be part of this episode um and talking about how your Asperger's syndrome I guess presents itself a little bit and you've already said that you can find it challenging to to maintain friendships do you do you think that there are other things that are unique about you because of your Asperger's well I tend to read body language very well and I am also able to pick up certain things about people I get certain vibes from people and the other thing is I am also very insightful as well. Yeah, I noticed that on the show. Um, you do pick up things and you per- it's it's like you have like a, a superpower in perception. Um, I suppose. Yeah, which, which is a blessing and a curse because sometimes it can be quite confusing because neurotypical people can often say things that they don't mean and behave in ways that are conflicting with how they're behaving. Yes. I know. Um, but also, too, I feel more comfortable around women than I am with men. Yeah. Why do you think that is? It's because I've always resonated more with women. I've always been more comfortable around women. I always have. I think maybe they're like a little bit kinder, a little bit more less loud, a little bit more gentle. I don't know. The things that I... Yeah, those think, things. Yeah. And, and I think... because Yeah. And because they're also something of an enigma. As in you kind of are interested in getting to understand them. Yeah. As much as I as no as much as I try my best, I'm never going to be able to completely understand women. Even though I keep trying. And is that something that sort of entices you or is it a bit baffling? Probably both. Yeah. Have you had much success um, with trying to date, with trying to, like, find a partner? Nope, still no luck. Although, although I will let you know on something. Go on. This, this is going to be um, off topic, but I could probably mention this. Of all the accents in the world, my favourite is English accents. What kind of accents? Like London or particular types of English? Probably London, I think. London's very like Harry Potter, you know, like, all oh. right, governor, you know, like this. But then there's like Cockney London and then Leeds, yeah, which is a bit more rough. What what types of accents have you heard? Like, do you watch British television? Um, some, some of it. Um, I've most, mostly seen Faulty Towers. Oh, Faulty Towers. They don't really show that so much over here anymore because apparently um, Basil Faulty is like racist <laughs> too because some of the jokes are a bit racist towards, what's the name of the guy? Manuel. Oh. It hasn't aged very well, but I still think it's very funny. So tell me about um, how school how school was was for you. Well, in pro- I don't, ever, don't quite remember what it was like back in preschool, but in... um. In primary school, I, for my first couple of early years, I often sat alone during the breaks, but it's because I liked it that way. But it was a bit of a concern for my mother because she wanted me to socialize with the other kids and make friends, but I just quite didn't feel really prepared for it. But as time went on, I started to socialize with the other kids more. And even and and continues to do so while I was in high school. But I still sometimes sat alone as well. And was that because it was preference? Like it was kind of like too loud and too unpredictable to sit with other people, or just maybe that they didn't want to sit with you? It was basically just preference. Yeah. It can be kind of um I find it difficult even now to sit with groups of friends. I like to meet my friends one one at a time because it's difficult to kind of keep track of conversations and everything if there's a lot of people at a table. Yeah, I would agree with that. And how did you find the academic side of things? What were your what were your subjects that you excelled at? Actually, I never enjoyed any of the academic learning at all. Oh no. And uh, how how did was that just because it was the way that it was taught, or just you found it all a bit tedious? Just found it tedious. So would you have had interests of your own at home that you would have followed? Yep. Definitely. There's railways, animals, acting, and nature, spirituality. I'm I'm a huge fan of Thomas the Tank Engine, of course, because I 
absolutely love that. I love animation. I love researching about actors, actresses, animals. Uh, I trained as an actor. Have you ever done any like uh, improv or anything? I haven't really done a lot of improv. I only know a little bit about it. I think you think you might enjoy um, improvisation. It can be quite. Um, you just don't have time to think. It's just quite literal. You just have to like go with <laughs> go go with what happens. Um, but uh, yeah, I trained as an actor. I found it a little bit. Um, I found it actually quite easy because sometimes as an uh, as an autistic person or someone with Asperger's, you kind of have to. Um, or I found that I used to mask a lot, you know, just kind of pretend to fit in in ways that I didn't really understand. And that kind of helped me to, to become a pretty good actor. I see. Sounds really impressive. I mean, yeah, but it also can like lead to some mental health problems, as I'm sure you can understand by just like pretending to not be yourself all the time. Um, yeah. What kind of socialising do you like to do? Basically, spending time with friends by, you know, socialising with them, eating out, going to restaurants or going to the cinemas or going for drives with them or even just hang out with them at their place. So anything else you want us to know about you? Actually, there is some stuff. Go, tell me everything. Okay. Um, Something you should know about me is I'm a pretty serious person. Serious as in in not silly? I'm, I'm just a very serious character. I always have been. And also because my dad is kind of a serious person as well. And so does that mean that you don't like, you you don't sort of pl- play games or be foolish? No. Yeah, but that's there's nothing wrong with that. And I'm also very blunt. Mm-hmm. I like people to be that way. But a lot of people, but some people have a problem with that because a lot of people just can't handle the truth. <laughs> yeah, what's that film? You can't handle the truth. And there's also another thing that I realized recently. Go on. Kind people are scarce these days, but well, selfish people are very common. That is very true. Kindness is rare, but it's beautiful. Exactly. And, and when it comes to relationships, this is what I like to tell people. If you ever find a partner in life, you should not only be loyal, but also grateful. Because if you end up losing a treasure as valuable as a woman, there's a chance that you might not be able to get it back. That's pretty profound, Michael. Because... If you're, if you're with a woman, you're supposed to cherish her and love her every day. Do you feel that a lot of men don't do that? Sometimes, but that's for some cases. And if you ever, have you ever heard of a, a man say to his partner, we'll talk about it later? Mm-hmm. When he says, we'll talk about it later, do you know what he actually means? No. Generally, that's more of a man's way of saying, I don't want to talk about it ever and expects, and expects it to never be brought up again. Why doesn't he just say that then? Because because men say one thing, but they mean a different thing. Do you do that? No. I just tend to be straightforward and to the point. I think that's something that women would appreciate because I think the mind games are very exhausting for women. Yeah, it is. I know. Because sometimes, and actually not sometimes, I actually like lending, a, lending an ear to what a woman has to say. Yeah. Like what kinds of things have you? How do women come to you with? Well, if they have something, if they have if they have a problem or need some advice or guidance, I'd be happy to listen and just offer some advice I can think of. And do you have friends who do that? Who 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 do that a lot? They don't really come to me for it. I just offer it. I think you'd be pretty good at giving advice. Let me see if there's anything that I could get your advice on. Oh, actually, I do have a situation. I have a situation. At, I have a situation at work where yeah. um, I have I have kind of I've been offered to do something, and the I really want to do it, but the date that they've that the, the date that the thing is on, I I'm not available because of a medical issue. But I don't want to disclose oh. the medical issue to the people. So how do I tell them I'm not available, but I would like to do it? but I can't without seeming like I'm lying or like being duplicitous. What I would probably do is um, gently sit down with them and disclose the the medical condition in confidence and okay. then try and, and 
range to possibly um, work around the date. So you think that to disclose is the best thing to do? Maybe in confidence, not publicly. Okay, so just and, and ask for their confidence and hold it for them, from like hold it in secret for me. Yeah, yes, just um, just speak to your just speak to your employer in confidence. Disclose the the medical condition to that person and only that person, mm-hmm. and ask if and discuss maybe a solution to work around this problem. I think you give pretty very logical and reasonable advice. Do I think I think when this podcast comes out people are going to say I, I think I I think Michael should like we should bring our problems to Michael and he should give us advice on on like an agony uncle on how to yeah. like manage our problems. Would you be open to that? I would be, but the thing is I don't know everything. Yeah, of course nobody knows everything, but based on what you know and and you know the limits of your knowledge, so you could say I can't. I can't help you with that, you know? Yeah, it depends on what the on what the subject is because there are some things I might not be able to help people with. What do you think are your like? What do you think I would be very good at giving advice on this, and I would be terrible at giving advice on this? Well, probably relation relationships. You think you would be good? I think you have a lot of um very. You're almost like a philosopher. You have some very brilliant sentences there that you shared. Well, I a lot of my wisdom has come from my father. Okay. Because I spent my entire life listening to his principles. Mm-hmm. And practicing them in your affairs. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And the other thing is, even though I have no experience in, in relationships, I, I've actually studied human behavior for a long time. Do you have any other tips for people? Yeah, I do. Share them with us. You should always spe- spare at least 10 minutes or so with your partner and listen to what they have to say. It might be important. And tell your partner that you love them on a daily basis. That's something I would do. And also never go to bed angry. Because when you wake up in the morning, the issue is just going to keep going on. And and giving your partner an ultimatum is never the answer to us to a problem. The best solution is to find is to find a solution that satisfies both the man and the woman. Because that way it makes it fair. It has to go both ways. And if you have a problem in your relationship, don't work through it alone. Work through it together. That's what a partnership is. A lot of people see marriage as just a piece of paper. That's called a marriage certificate. <laughs> marriage is actually the spiritual and emotional bond between two souls agreeing to spend the rest of their lives together, sharing their lives together. What could be more special than that? And that's what you're looking for. Like when you went on uh, Love on Spectrum, you, you want someone sort of like your mom and dad, someone to share like, what kind of a partner do you think you would be? I would be a very, a very loyal and un, a loyal, loving and incredibly devoted husband. I think you would be. And I think it'll happen too. Do you think it'll happen? Yeah, I am pretty confident that it will. I think it definitely will. And I think once pandemic is over and things open back up, I think yeah. the pandemic has not been good for people being able to date and um, find partners with each other. So what else do you think that people should know about you before we finish up, Michael? Um, you, you didn't get a chance to ask me why I, why I love British culture, I mean, German culture. Tell me, why do you love German culture? It's because their cuisine is very meat-based and because a very close friend of mine, my best female friend, her name is Brianna, she lived in Germany quite a while and she invited me to stay with her for two weeks at her at her apartment in Berlin twice did you go of course I did and I loved it oh wow and somebody once told me that German people are generally perceived as as generally serious people in nature yes and I actually have an appreciation for that since I'm pretty serious myself yeah for a long time I thought that the 
the fact that I was very direct with people, the fact that I can seem a little bit curt in in my contact with people um, yeah. or the fact that I'm very punctual and I like rules and order. I thought yeah. it was because I'm German. Actually, it's because I'm yeah. autistic, but um, uh, they are oh. traits that can go with the culture. Thank you so much, Michael, for coming on the podcast and we'll definitely get you on again if that's something that you would like. I would be interested, yeah. Yeah, I actually enjoyed. I actually enjoyed this this conversation. Yeah, I did too. Um, and I'm really glad that you came on, and it was a pleasure to meet you. You're absolutely fabulous, and um, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting to know you more and and to developing our friendship. Yes, I I actually would love that. And also, Stephanie, um, it was actually lovely meeting you as well. And and if you actually want to keep in touch with me, mm-hmm. that's completely fine with me. You have my full permission. I absolutely will message you on Instagram and we can um, make our plans there. Thank you so much, Michael. Okay. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. Talk to you soon. Thank you for having me on. No problem. Thanks, Steph. Bye-bye. Take care of yourself. Bye. Stay safe. You too. Ciao. Ciao. And that is another episode of Basically. I have been your host, Stephanie Preisner. Uh, we are part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Our producer is Alan Bennett. Our music is by Only Ruin. Our graphic design is by Kahal O'Gara. And for those of you who are Headstuff community members, please would you send a voice note introducing the podcast and why you listen to Basically so that you can hear your voice on the podcast and other people can know that you support us. Send a voice note to speakpipe.com forward slash basically for a chance to introduce the next podcast. Thank you. Over and out. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Thank <laughs> you.